but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you, we are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Mindy. You've been with Jesus for three years, the most amazing three years of your life, and now he's dropped a bomb on you. I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you cannot come. You're convinced he's the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, and now he says he's leaving? Jesus commands you to love each other, but Peter is not interested in obeying some command to love right now. He wants answers. He asks, Lord, where are you going? And gets the same answer. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Never one to take no for an answer. Peter says, I am willing to die for you. Commendable in courage, foolish in self-sufficiency, as Jesus informs Peter, he will deny Jesus three times that very night. The other disciples have to be wondering if bold Peter is going to completely collapse tonight, what's going to happen to the rest of us? And so Jesus seeks to encourage them all in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's the setting before us. Troubled hearts. Now those disciples had a unique reason for a troubled heart. Jesus was going away. 
But disciples today often have troubled hearts as well, do we not? Most of us have, thankfully, plenty of food, shelter, good medical care, yet our hearts are often troubled. A troubled heart is the universal pandemic. No one has immunity against worry or fear. No vaccine exists for anxiety. What's troubling your heart this morning? What was troubling heart, your heart this week? Where do you lack peace of mind and comfort in soul on a regular basis? Got it in mind? Jesus' answer in verse 1 is, Believe in God, believe, believe also in him. But what exactly are we to believe, Jesus? Believe what? Well, that's really the rest of our passage, isn't it? Believe, you might say, a why, a how, and a who to help our troubled hearts. First, the why. Why is Jesus going away? Why? Verse 2, Jesus continues, In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, he's talking about heaven, as it becomes clear. His Father's house, where there are many rooms. Some older translations render this many mansions instead of rooms. And that's a, that's a translation error from a Latin version into English. The original Greek word doesn't mean mansions, it means dwelling place. A more than sufficient dwelling place in heaven, his father's house. Now, if you are disappointed that this verse does not promise you a mansion in heaven, please allow Jonathan Edwards to help you. Quote, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better, infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. infinitely better. See, Jesus is hinting at where he's going, but he's really focused on why, isn't he? Notice how he continues. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Here's why. He goes to prepare a heavenly place for his people. Now, how does he do that? How does he go and prepare a place in heaven. Well, he goes and prepares a place by what he's about to do through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You see, we are sinful and God is holy. We cannot have a dwelling place with infinite holiness and righteousness and justice and purity. That's like trying to hang out on the surface of the sun. But the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, quote, entered once for all into the holy places, heaven, by means of his own blood, Hebrews 9. It's like the Old Testament priests who would approach the altar at the temple in Jerusalem, but only, only with the sprinkling of sacrificial blood. Someone had to pay the death penalty that they might even draw near to that temple. And so Jesus blazes a trail to heaven through his sacrifice, through his death in our place. As we sang, he 
ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, listen, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now, sprinkles now the throne of grace. So he has prepared a place, a heavenly place, his father's house like that. Do you wish to enter heaven? It is prepared for you already, but you must rely solely on the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so I urge you this morning to come to Christ, to surrender to him, and to hope in, trust in, rely solely on his finished work in your place. But then notice, notice what else Jesus says, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, notice, I will come again and will take you to myself. There is, I think you might say, a twofold experience of heaven for Christians today. First, the Christian dies and their spirit goes immediately into God's presence. Second, when Christ returns and makes all things new, the believer is raised with a glorified body to dwell with God on a new heaven and a new earth, or new heavens and new earth. And Jesus seems to have that second aspect in view when he says, I will come again. I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And notice the next phrase, that where I am, you may be also. That's the best part of heaven. Christ is there, and you with him forever. Richard Baxter was a 17th century Puritan. That just means someone seeking to purify, as it were, the Church of England. And Baxter is famous for his writings on heaven. He battled various illnesses for most of his life. At one point, he was sure he was going to die. He began to meditate daily on the hope of heaven. He actually lived out of that sickness, and those meditations became a book that is a classic, The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And he describes that everlasting rest, that heavenly rest, as involving a number of things, like perfect freedom from all evils, perfection in body and soul. Then he says, and the nearest enjoyment of God, the nearest enjoyment of God, which he calls your chief good. And then he says, basically, I'm at a loss. I can't adequately describe for you the nearest enjoyment of God in heaven. But he says this, imagine how the Queen of Sheba said when visiting King Solomon, she said, happy are your servants who stand continually before your throne, King Solomon. And then he adds, what will we say when we stand continually before God? See his glory, the glory of the Lamb. Won't we be much more than happy? Being in his presence forever. He goes on 
though he said he couldn't describe it, he goes on to recount glimpses of heaven in the book of Revelation and says this, O blind, deceived world, can you show us such glory? I love that. Blind, deceived world, can you show us such glory? This is the city of our God, where the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and his servants shall see his face. As Jesus said, where I am, you may be also. Friends, do you desire heaven? I hope you do. But ask yourself, why do I desire heaven? Why? Freedom from all evils? Sounds good. Perfection in body and soul? I'll sign up for that. Maybe seeing loved ones, of course. But, but have a far greater anticipation of the nearest enjoyment of God as your chief good, the chief benefit of heaven. That's why Jesus goes to prepare that place for all who believe. And second, the how. How to go where Jesus goes. How do you follow where Jesus says he's going? Verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas replies, Lord, we do not know where you're going. You didn't answer Peter's question. <laughs> we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, Thomas is hung up on the where. We can't put into Google Maps <laughs> some way to follow you if you don't have a destination. We need a destination so we can follow you. Just tell us where you're going. In response, Jesus gives them how. Verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice, not a way, a truth, a giver of life, as in one among many. The definite article in the original applies to and appears before each term. The way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to God. That's the main issue here. But Jesus is equally the truth, the fully accurate, comprehensive truth about God and the life. It's worth, it's worth noting John's purpose for this whole book is found in chapter 20, as we will see. His aim for the whole book is that by believing in Christ, you may have life in his name, eternal life. The way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you've heard the illustration of the blind men and the elephant. It appears in different forms in different ways, but it goes something like this. Three blind men are brought to an elephant and asked what an elephant is. Please describe the elephant. One blind man holds the trunk of the elephant and says an elephant is like this big tube. Another blind man hangs on to the ear of the elephant and says an elephant is something that's big and soft and floppy. The third blind man holds on to the elephant's tail and says an elephant is like, like a rope. And the point of the parable is 
all religions have truth about God, and they just describe it from different vantage points. That's why they differ. Jesus claims the exact opposite. He doesn't merely point the way to God. He's not some heavenly tour guide. Hey, here's one trail, or here's the trail. You can follow this trail. He says, I'm the trail itself. I'm the pathway. I'm the only road you must travel to God. And in case we miss the exclusivity of his claim, he adds in verse 6, notice verse 6, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now you might be thinking, and our culture will say, you Christians are incredibly arrogant to claim that you know the only way to God. That is intolerant and arrogant. And certainly, Christians can be arrogant. Let us not deny that. But this claim is not an arrogant one. It's simply Jesus' claim for himself. Our Lord says, I'm the only way to God. The Christian is obligated to believe that and submit to that. But maybe you're here and you think, you don't know, rather, you don't need this way at all. You automatically assume, as people often say when someone dies, well, they're in a better place. R.C. Sproul once said that the second most common misconception about justification, being right with God, being just with God, the second most common misconception is justification by works that by your own works, your own efforts, you can go to heaven. Now, when you hear that, don't you want to know the first most common misconception? He says the first most common is justification by death. That simply by dying, you go to heaven. Jesus is saying the exact opposite of that as well. He is the necessary way, the necessary object of your faith. You don't need, you don't need to endlessly search for a way to God, some truth about God, or some life in God. He is all of that for you right now, commanding you to believe. That's the how. Third, the who. And I don't mean the, the band, if that's where your brain just went. Who is Jesus to make such a claim? Who? Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father then, and it is enough for us. Now, Jesus never sinned. But I imagine this was one of his greater temptations to impatience in this moment. Okay, Lord, well, just show us the Father. That, that'll be enough. We'll be satisfied with that. Verse 9. Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen, has seen the Father. Recall Moses and his longing to see God. And God said, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I will let you see the afterglow of my glory because you could survive that much. But here Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How is that? Well, God is a complex unity. A complex unity. One God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within this complex unity, there is a mutual indwelling between persons of the Godhead. That's in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. Distinct persons, but a mutually, mutual indwelling among them. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So, in the Son, we are, in effect, seeing the Father. So, when you read the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which I encourage you to do on a regular basis, and you observe Jesus' character and heart, you see his righteous anger toward religious hypocrites. And you see his mercy and his compassion toward the hurting, toward sinners and sufferers. You see him welcoming the outcast, caring for the destitute. When you see Jesus in those ways, you are seeing the Father's heart as well on full display. Jesus goes on to say, and we don't have time to unpack this, Look, my works and my words verify who I am. In fact, my followers will do greater things in the coming new covenant age on a worldwide scope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the, the point here of the who, the implication of the who, is that the Son, the Son, can truly bring us to the Father because He is divine. He is God, the Son. Kind of like this. A pastor named Skip Ryan tells of working on a project for the State Department. He found himself at the White House working in a meeting room just across the hall from the Oval Office, the official workplace of the president. After the meeting, a State Department official asked him, would you like to see the Oval Office because the president is out? Of course, he said yes. And so he was brought into the Oval Office, and Mr. Ryan says he recalls two things about that visit. First, the awe he experienced in being in the Oval Office itself, and secondly, secondly, that he never could have entered there unless he was taken by someone authorized to bring him in. I think that's the importance of this who. It assures you that Christ is authorized to do something far more awe-inspiring, bring you into the Father's house. When you see me, he says, you see the Father. He is able to bring you into the Father's presence forever. So put this why and how and who together. It's our sure heavenly hope 
found in Christ and only in Christ who is God. Our sure, certain, heavenly hope found in Christ, the way, the truth, and the life only in Christ who is God. And the response is to believe that, we were told in verse 1. Remember that? Believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe that reality to, to live and to die with this heavenly hope found only in Christ. I mentioned a few weeks back what Christians in the past used to call the ars moriendi, the art of dying. And this passage is crucial for that, that you might die what they called a good death, hoping in Christ. But believing this is also critical for how you live right now. How you live, you need this heavenly hope. Sometimes we hear it said, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But Jesus clearly wants his disciples to think on and hope in what he's done for us to bring us to heaven. Colossians 3 commands that. Set your mind on things above. Yet, as Richard Phillips points out, how little do we do so? He says when, when moving to a new city or vacationing in a new city, we will often pour over maps and books. We will often do extensive research. We will often study the geography and culture of that new place we're going. How strange, he says, that so few believers seem to have interest in the place where they will be with Christ forever. Oh, friends, let us have much interest much interest in where we will be with Christ forever. Doing so will have an effect for you and me. We recall, recall the setting. Recall the scene in verse 1. Troubled hearts. The disciples are troubled for a unique reason. They've been with Jesus. They know he's the Messiah, the Christ. They have some conception of that at least and he's announced he's going away. Unique reason to be troubled at heart, but let us make application. A troubled heart is universal. We have troubles about money, jobs, health, kids, parents. Troubles on the scope of national or global events. We are often full of trouble in our hearts, are we not? Worry, anxiety, fear, and, and no one has an immunity to those things. But think of the hope of heaven as part of your spiritual immune system. Your soul can be more resistant to those temptations with this heavenly hope. Not immune, not immune, 
but maybe more resistant to them, able to fight those battles more effectively. So you might ask, well, how, Tab? How does the hope of heaven found only in Christ, who is God, how does that make a difference for my troubled heart? Well, I think one answer would be perspective. Perspective that, that keeps you going with faith and even enduring with joy. Think of the, the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. Heaven, the celestial city, doesn't actually appear until the very end of the book but the entire thing is about Christian, the main character, enduring trouble and trial and difficulty one after another because he has this great hope of heaven. It kept him going. Or think of that real-life example I mentioned, Richard Baxter, who lived with painful ailments almost his entire life. And with the pain, he meditated on heaven for a half an hour a day, it is said, without fail. Half an hour a day. I know you might say, get a real job, Richard, but half an hour a day meditating on heaven. He said he wrote the book, The Saints Everlasting Rest, while, quote, looking death full in the face, yet experiencing the sufficient grace of God. That's what this perspective can do building your spiritual immune system so that you can look at death or any trial in the face and yet experience sufficient, sustaining grace from God. Baxter put it like this. He said, be of good cheer, Christian. Be of good cheer. The time is at hand when God and you shall be near, as near and as you can well desire. Is that enough, he says? Is that enough? You shall ever stand before him about his throne. You shall be an heir of his kingdom. Yes, more, the spouse of his son. What more can you desire, he asks. See his point? With that hope, it keeps everything else in perspective. You might think of it like this. Heaven can shrink your troubles down to the appropriate size. It's like putting that wool sweater accidentally into the dryer, and it's three sizes smaller. Well, heaven can do that for your troubles. They won't go away, but they might be shrunken down in your heart. Not be so big. And daunting. But I confess to you, meditating on heaven is a weakness in my spiritual immune system. But I want to endeavor to at least add a little bit, even a little bit, friends, of heavenly meditation could make a real difference for my heart and yours. I read that if a plane is leaving LAX to land in Washington, D.C., if it adjusts its course just a few degrees, just a few degrees, it will land in New York City instead, 225 miles to the north. The point is a small change over time 
can make a significant difference. A little bit of heaven kept before us could make a significant difference for you and me. Maybe it's buying that classic book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, or memorize verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14 and live in light of this sure heavenly hope found only in Christ who is God. But ultimately, ultimately, this is not about what you must do, but what Christ has done for you. We began with Jesus predicting Peter's denial. You're going to deny me three times tonight, Peter. The gospel writer Luke gives a little more information to us in Luke chapter 22. Luke tells us that Jesus also said to Peter, quote, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Certainly Peter was going to fail. He did fail. You and I will fail, but Jesus praying that Peter's faith would not ultimately fail made all the difference. It did not ultimately fail, and neither will Jesus let your faith ultimately fail if you are his. As the famous hymn says, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far." And grace will do what? Grace will lead me home. The way, the truth, and the life will get you there. This is your sure heavenly hope found only in Christ, who is God for us. Let's pray.